0: Amen. So, we are continuing in our sermon series on the life of David. If you were here last week, Pastor Cameron talked about, right, there's two major events in David's life that everybody seems to know, right? David and Goliath and David and Bathsheba. So last week, Pastor Cameron talked about David and Bathsheba, and that was where we spent a lot of time. And and that is... To say that that is a low point in David's life is to, uh, is to have, is that's an understatement, right? Because that was absolutely horrendous. We saw and we were challenged that David's, David's big decision, right? His big moral failure in that time wasn't, wasn't an isolated moment. It wasn't a moment where David kind of just like had a weak moment. No, there was there was a number of small decisions that led up to that big decision. And that's one of the things that we were challenged with last week, is that if we if we want to avoid the quote unquote big sin, big failure, right, we need to be faithful in the small moments. We can't we cannot expect ourselves to, to be able to uh, be strong when hard temptation comes if we're not even um, putting up a fight when smaller temptations come. And then, da- and then Cameron challenged us that we, if there was any of us that, that dealt with sin by hiding it, by not letting it into the light, right? Because like, when, we, when we hide things, when we take sin and we put it into the dark, that's when shame... ...and guilt kind of grow these vines. And they they kind of grab hold of your heart and soul... ...and they say, you don't belong in community. They say, no one else is as bad as you. And there's all these lies that are said to you. And if you were to take that thing... that ...if you were to come out of the darkness and into the light... ...then you would find that you're not alone. You would find there is freedom and forgiveness and transformation. There is life to be had in the light. And that was the the call that Cameron gave us last week. And really, we're going to be picking up right from there. We're going to be talking about David and his repentance. We kind of ended the story. David had had done these horrible things but he hadn't been caught yet right he thought he had gotten away and the prophet Nathan comes and he confronts him in the next chapter and says look I know what you've done right and and David is is convicted David has this moment where he realizes what he's done and how he's transgressed the Lord and and what we're reading in Psalm 51 is his prayer between him and God it's it's this moment it's this it's this intimate like it's this glimpse into the window right if you you want to like you ever hear a conversation and you're like oh that was like maybe like on accident you overheard like a conversation that was like maybe not meant for you like it was a little private like we're getting to listen in on a conversation between David and God and it's an immensely personal conversation It's a conversation where we get an inside look at who God is and and David's heart in relating to him. If you've ever wanted to know, what is God's heart towards me? What is God's attitude towards me? What would he say to me? That's what we're going to get to look at as we're getting to look at God's nature, his character, and how he interacts with us people who are broken, and people who have sin. So, uh, with that in mind, I want to, I want to go through, um, I want to first read Psalm 51. And because psalms are prayers, psalms are songs, right? They're not these sort of, they're not necessarily these, it's not like reading a logic textbook or, or something like that. They're poetic, they're, they're meant to evoke something inside of our hearts on a very emotional and spiritually deep level. And so today I want to approach this psalm that way. I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to so much preach the psalm as much as I want us to sing this psalm together. And so if we can, I would encourage you to listen to this psalm. Whether that's following along on the screen or in your Bible, or whether that's just closing your eyes... And imagining the face of David as he perhaps says these words. Or imagining how these words might resonate with you in some points. And so I would encourage you, however you most need to let this psalm to begin to sink into your heart and shape it, I would encourage you to do that. So here we are, Psalm 51. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him, after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict, and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous. In burnt offerings offered whole, then bulls will be offered on your altar." It's a pretty, uh, it's a raw psalm. There's a reason that this is one of the most famous psalms, and that's because it is just so crystal clear that David is wrestling. He's coming and he's being honest before the Lord. So if we were to break this psalm down, kind of break it up into chunks, because it's not a small section, Uh, you could divide it up into chunks. The first chunk is this approach towards God, verses 1 through 2. And then verses 3 through 9 is David is coming forward and he is expressing this need for being pardoned, for being forgiven of his sins. And then verses 10 through 17 is this need for a transformation in his heart. It's not enough that he be forgiven, he needs to be transformed. And then the final last two verses, 18 and 19, are this closing prayer and promise. So I just want to walk through this psalm kind of chunk by chunk and kind of pull out what is, what has this got for us? What does this mean for how we live our lives and how we interact with God? The first thing, right, I'm a Bible nerd, so you're going to get Bible facts. Um, The first thing is that, you know that little part where it says at the beginning of the psalm in your Bible, it says for the director of music, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, that is actually, like, that's actually part of the manuscript. That's part of the scriptures that we have. Um, Jewish Bibles actually include that and make that verse number one. Uh, And so our psalms don't match up with theirs because they label that verse number one. Um, and sometimes, because it's just kind of this little superscription, sometimes we kind of ignore it or something like that, but it actually genuinely is part of what we have, and it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a way of understanding the context of this psalm. And I want to pause, and I want <clears throat> to kind of take a moment to address something that is not my main point, but I think is important. I think it's, it's worthwhile for us to Pause and to think and to address this. Because it's a a topic that has been and will continue to be a topic of discussion in sort of church life, Christian life, and and, in just public life in general. And that is, what do we do and how do we handle when leaders fail? Right? Because that's what David did, right? Like, David was the king. He was the anointed one of God, and he failed big time. Right? Can you imagine being someone and hearing that your king had done these things? The, 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 the hurt that his actions not only influenced his life and those that he sinned against directly, but it had, his had a chance to impact the nation with his decisions. And so, How do we handle that? And the first thing I would say is that any person that you ever look to will always ever, they will always be found to be a sinner. Right? A man is only ever as good as much as they get you to look at Christ. Right? That, it doesn't matter who it is. No author, no speaker, no friend, no family member, no pastor is without sin or without flaw. And that leader, that person you're looking towards, is only as good as they point you towards Christ. And and, and as someone who is standing in front of you this morning holding a Bible, my only hope, because I am a sinner, is to point you to Christ, to point you to the cross. Don't look at me, look at Christ. I was talking with a friend and and they were expressing this discouragement. They were saying, every time I turn on the news it sounds like there's another celebrity Christian, whether that be musician or author or pastor who is renouncing their faith or having a moral failure of some kind. And, And it's so discouraging to me. And I said, I understand that. Like, I get that. Because it is discouraging to see that. But you know what? I wonder if sometimes we do not put too much um, too much weight, too much, um, too much value in public Christians, in celebrity Christians. Because you know what's more encouraging to me is not the faith of someone on TV, But it's the faith of those of you who are sitting in this pew each week. It's the quiet faith of obedience. That speaks more to me than anyone with any amount of dollars or clout or celebrity that confesses Christ. And I I just want to encourage us that we cannot build our faith on top of the faith of someone else. We can only ever build our faith on that of Christ. He is the cornerstone. Now, there's so much more that could be said about that topic, but I just thought that it was important, because that is is what is happening here. And we could talk about what does it look like to have reconciliation and the consequences of all of those. But here in this psalm, right, we, we see there's two people in view. The first is that of God, and the second is that of David. A man and God. And so that's what we're going to be wrestling with today is that relationship. So let's go and let's look at the first two verses. This is this is where I feel like the core of this passage begins to come to light. Verse one: Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. When you're reading the Psalms, right, like, like I think even at the beginning of this service I said that Psalms are poetic, right? It's poetry, um, and when we think of poetry, right, the first thing that comes to my mind is is rhyming poetry, right? Like roses are red, violets are blue, the, beautiful, the day is beautiful, and so are you, right? Like something like that. That's what comes to our mind. Um, but if, if you could read Hebrew, and if I could read Hebrew, because I can't, um, and you were to read Hebrew, like the words still wouldn't rhyme. And Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme in sounds of words but rather rhymes in ideas. So when you're reading the Psalms, you can still see, you can see, oh look, there's a theme here, there's an, there's an idea that's being repeated over and over. That's the type of rhyming that's in the Psalms. And even in a lot of the Bibles that you'll have in your hands, uh, you'll see little breaks in the paragraphs, and that's where the translators have kind of indicated there's a break in topic or theme, there's a transition. And so in this first Two verses. We have two sets of three. We have uh, three descriptions of God's mercy, that God has mercy, right? And that that He has unfailing mercy, mercy and love that doesn't stop. And He has this compassion, right? This, This coming alongside, not just a pity that stays and looks down upon, but a compassion that comes alongside and loves and brings mercy. And in the second set of three is this description of sin, right? Wash away my transgressions. I've crossed a line that I shouldn't have. This iniquity has made me, is, 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 has has gotten me dirty. I'm I'm carry with me sin, and and then there is also this. Just this. I know that I have fallen short. From what God has, has for me. And so these are the two sets of three. And, and I want to. Uh, There's a, there a quote that I ran across. That has. That puts this into excellent view. And that is this. That, so this is, this is Martin Luther. And he's quoting. Saint, he's summarizing uh, St. Bernard. And it says this. Knowledge of self. Without the knowledge of God leads to despair. So knowledge of God without knowledge of self leads to presumption. And you might be, what what in the world does that mean, right? Well, the the thing is is that there's, there's two places we can get stuck. And this is describing both of them. The first is the knowledge of self without God, right? I know myself. I know my weaknesses, I know the places in which I have shortcomings, I know the things that I have done, I know myself, but I don't know about God. And this is a place of shame where I recognize that My sin is great and God could never forgive me because I don't know the God of compassion. I don't know the God who forgives. The God who has loving kindness towards me. That's one place we can get stuck. The second place we can get stuck is a place where we know God. Where we think we know all about him. He's he's great. This this could be summarized in saying that I know that God is great and I think I am too. Right? It's this place of... Of, of being puffed up with knowledge about God, but then not knowing our own weaknesses. This is the, the, the life of the Pharisee. This is the, the one who, who, who levels the law at others but, and, and, and points out the speck in his brother's eye, but doesn't see the log in his own. And both of those places to get stuck are awful. And in this psalm, whichever camp you might find yourself tempted or or getting stuck in, this psalm has the answer for both of them. Right? Because we need to know ourselves. We need to be honest about who we are and our weaknesses. But we also need to fully know who God is and the fact that they're not incompatible with each other. And so this is the primary point. This is what I want to say absolutely crystal clearly over and over again today and that is that there is no sinner who is beyond the forgiving and transforming grace of God. There is no person who is too far gone. There is no situation that is outside of God's reach for his grace to grab hold of and bring about transformation, bring about forgiving, to bring about healing. There is no place beyond God's reach. And that is the solution to both of these. And so let's talk about, let's talk about the first, right? This, let's talk about thinking God is great, but not knowing myself, right? Is that what David models for us? Well, let's look at verses three through six, So, what's absent in those couple of verses? The thing that's absent, the thing that is markedly absent, is excuses. You don't see David saying, Well, God, you don't understand how stressful it is to be the king. How much responsibility I have. How tired I was that night. Anyone would have done what I had done. David does not offer an excuse, but rather he looks inwards and he acknowledges his own sinfulness, that it came up out of himself, not from somebody else making him do it. It was something that was born out of him. There's a, there's a verse in there that might, that might kind of strike us and hit our ears as, as being kind of odd or difficult to understand. In verse 4, it says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Is that true? Did, Did David only sin against God? Because there's Bathsheba, there's her dead husband, and the other men that David had killed alongside him because he was trying to kill Uriah. What about them? And the answer to that question is, is the first, just to answer the question of, what is sin? Right? If we were to look at what David did, it's absolutely a crime. Right? We can talk about it in those terms. But what makes a sin? What even merits the existence of sin? In order for there to be sin, there must be a God. Right? So that's the first thing, is that sin exists because God exists. If there wasn't a God, we couldn't sin because there would be no moral lawgiver. And then the second thing is to say that if I were to sin against my neighbor, I've sinned against them, but I've also ultimately sinned against God. Why? Well, it's because what we're told that each and every person born who exists, bears the image of God. That means every single person has innate value and worth because God created them. And when I sin against someone, I'm not just sinning against them, I'm sinning against God's image. I'm sinning against God's grace and love towards that person. I'm interrupting that. I am am acting in in opposition to God's commandments. And so ultimately, all sin against anyone ends up in the throne room of God. And so here we have David, and he's, he's owning it. And then not only, not only is he owning his actions, he's owning an inner disposition. Surely from the moment I was born... From the moment I was conceived, sin, sin was a part of me. And, and so he's, he's saying, God, not only did I do it, I have an inner disposition towards sin. Left to my own devices and unchecked, I will not do the right thing, but rather the wrong thing. And so David, is, he is, he's, he's not being ignorant of himself. Right? But is he he being ignorant of God? Does he truly know who God is? Right? Because next we see see these cries, these deep needs for forgiveness. Let's look at verses 7 through 9. He says, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. All right, here we have another set of three. We have cleanse, wash, and blot. He's asking for three different ways for God to forgive him from his sins. If you were to look back at verses 1 and 2, you would see those same three words being used. Blot, wash, and cleanse. So I want to talk about two of those. I want to take time and talk about, to talk about cleanse. I want to talk about blotting out of sin. So the first thing, cleanse, right? first thing that pops into my mind, right, if we're playing word association, is like a juice cleanse, right? Like an idea of like, drinking all this juice and going on a diet and getting all these toxins released from our bodies, right? Well, that's actually a pretty helpful thing to think about. That's what David is asking for. He's literally asking to be de-sinned, like a sponge that's carrying water. He wants to be wrung out and it to be removed from him. He's saying, God, remove sin from my being. I want it out of me. I was talking with uh, a good friend of mine who is a part of a Christian denomination that practices um, confession. And, and for a lot of us, right, like we, when we think of confession, we think of Catholicism, and, and maybe not always the best things about Catholicism. But there was something really beautiful in what he was describing to me about how he practiced confession and what he was encouraged to do. We were having a conversation and in conversation he was about to tell me something about a, a mistake or a sin that he had made. And he, and he paused and he said, you know, I actually, I've already taken that to confession. And, 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 and I've been absolved from it. Right? And, and I'm not supposed to talk about it anymore. Not really. Because, because it's finished. Because Christ has dealt with it. Talk about taking seriously what the scripture says when it says, as far as the east is from the west, so I have removed your sins from you. When Christ was on the cross and he said it was finished, it meant something. How often do we walk along with a list and history of sin, we've got a browsing history of sin, that we just hover over our own heads and we beat ourselves up about? That is, such our proclivity is to live into this place of shame and guilt. What if we truly took those words in Scripture at their face value and believed that God had dealt with it and that we would confess to one another and we would encourage each other when we hear a brother or a sister saying something about themselves that is not true anymore? Something that God has forgiven them from. Something that God is redeeming them from. That is no longer who you are. God says you are a new creation. Let us be a people who call that out. Who lift one another up into the grace of Christ. And then here he's he's asking to be cleansed, to be de-sinned, right? And he's asking to be cleansed with hyssop right? And for the longest time I had no idea what hyssop was. Um, And I finally was like, you know what, I should just find out what it is. So I looked it up, googled it. Um, Hyssop is actually these branches. It's this plant. grows in the Middle East and it's a really kind of, it's it's a really stiff plant. Kind of, you could use it as a brush, right? And so this, this plant hyssop branches the first time we see them actually mentioned in Scripture is in the Exodus. When, when the people are getting ready before the final plague, before they leave Egypt, right? The priests are sacrificing a pure, white, innocent lamb. And then they're taking hyssop branches and they're dipping it into the blood of the lamb and then they're painting it onto the doorposts of all of the Jews, of all the Israelites. Before the first Passover. Jesus is saying, or not Jesus, David is saying, he's saying to the Lord, he said, God, I need a priest. I need someone to forgive me. And the only way I can be forgiven is through a sacrifice. And there is no sacrifice I can give. I need someone to apply the blood of an innocent sacrifice to me. Paint me with the blood of the innocent lamb, so that I might not suffer the consequences. And we today, on this side of the cross, know that that lamb is Jesus Christ. Right? Behold, the Lamb of God who is coming to take away the sins of the world, who has died on the cross so that we might have new life and forgiveness from sins. Here is here are the two strokes of the gospel is that your sins were removed from you in the death of Christ and in the resurrection of Christ you are given new life what both happen it is not enough to simply say my sin has been removed i've also been given a new life see jesus christ came and he took all the awful things in this world and he turned them upside down because there is nothing more awful than the death of god There isn't. And so he came and by dying put to death death. He put to death sin, shame, and accusation of the enemy. And he said, all those who are in me, all those who accept my sacrifice, are now forgiven and now have a new life with me as I rise again on the third day. That is what David is asking for in this psalm, because he, look what it says here, he says, it says, Lord, blot out my sin, and, and when I think about the blotting out of sin, um, an uh, so, uh, internet video comes to mind, because I spend too much time on the internet, but there's a, there's a, there's a an artist i think he's over in europe somewhere and and they they have problems with neo-nazi graffiti right hate graffiti with hateful signs swastikas and the like being painted in public places and this artist comes along and he's not just taking out a roller brush and putting on some white paint over top of some graf- some hate graffiti no he's he's coming out and he's painting a brand new picture He's painting cupcakes over swastikas. And then somebody will come along, and then they'll, 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 paint, they'll put up some more hate graffiti, and then he just comes along and he'll add sprinkles and cover it up. Right? And it's, it's funny, it's humorous, right? But he's doing something redemptive. He's not just covering it up, he's creating something new. And that's what Christ wants to do in your life. He doesn't want to just remove and cover up your sin. He wants to create an image of you of his son. We want to be such people so that when you look at me, you no longer see my sin, but you see my Savior. That's the transformation that Christ is offering, that God has for us and that David is seeking. Lord, blot out my sin. Create something new within me. That's what he talks about in the next two verses. Look at verse 10. He starts off by saying, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. This is another moment where it's helpful to notice what has been absent so far from this entire psalm. When David talks about his sin, notice he hasn't mentioned lust. He hasn't mentioned sex. He hasn't mentioned pride or deceit. Here, David is saying, the problem is my heart. It's the inner condition of who I am. Right? Because David could have chained himself up could have locked himself down into a chair, and he couldn't have stopped himself from having committed those specific sins, but the heart, his inner self, would not have been transformed. He would have still been been sinful sitting in that chair, locked away from committing those things that he desired to do. Our sin problem, we don't have so much a sin problem as much as we have a heart problem. David is saying, Lord, I need to be reminded how good you are. I need to be reminded that I need to go nowhere else to find truth and satisfaction. I need to go nowhere else to find what is beautiful, what is lovely, what is good. Lord, keep me by your side. Lord, keep me from wandering. Makes me think of, of Come Thou found that hymn that says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Right, Lord, take my heart and in- just encapture in- my vision with how beautiful you are, with how good you are, and keep me from wandering daily. And so David is crying out for this transformed heart and that that just brings up in me and I imagine a lot of you a song of joy because we know what that means look at what David says in the next two verses starting in verse 13 he begins to talk about singing he says then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed O God you who are my savior and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Behind every witness of the gospel, there is a sinner who's been forgiven. Behind every Christian, there is someone who knows their own brokenness and has found a Savior who's willing to heal them. That is what our God has for us. That there is is truly a way forward. Like it says earlier in the psalm, it says, David is saying, let the bones that have been broken be healed and let there be rejoicing. I think there's a lot, I would say that probably the majority of people get stuck in that first place where we we feel trapped because of our sin, because of living in darkness and shame and guilt, and we don't feel like we can come forward. We say, surely God cannot forgive this. Surely God cannot transform my life. Surely there's no way forward from that. And that's not our gospel. That's not the truth. There is nothing If you were to say, if you were to fill in the blank, if you were to say, surely God will not forgive, and you could think of something, there's not supposed to be something there. It's a blank that doesn't get filled. We believe in a God who brings about transformation. It's one of the reasons we're going to be starting a a Celebrate Recovery ministry here. Is because we believe that what, no matter what our problem is, whether that be a hurt from our past, whether that be an addiction, whether that be something that we just can't seem to get over, that God has the power and so does the gospel to bring about transformation, to bring about healing in our inner selves, to give us a new heart, to restore to us the joy of our salvation. When David here is saying... I will teach sinners your ways. What what ways of God is he talking about? I think he's talking about because he says the ways of God that will lead sinners to repent. What leads us to repentance is God's kindness, his compassion, his mercy, right? It's that knowing of God's character, that he is good. That he he invites us. We have a God who has not stayed distant or far away from us, but who has come down to us. Who has become as weak as we are, so that we might be healed. That is the gospel. That is what I want to say to you today. If there's something that you feel like, surely God can't handle this, and I just would say, no, there isn't. That, that, that's not a thing. Don't continue to let Satan lie to you and say that there is something that God can't handle about you. That there's not a sin that God couldn't forgive. Because one of the things, you know, we, we like to think that we're special. right? And in some ways we are, but in a lot of ways we're not. And one of the ways that we think we're special is we think that our problems, our brokenness, the things that I have done, are uniquely terrible. And in, in, in the New Testament, it says that there is no temptation that has befallen you that is not common to man. There is nothing you have done or experienced temptation or sin that is not common to humankind. If we were to open ourselves up, we would find that we have way more in common than we'd like to admit. That our own brokenness is is not unique. It's commonplace. And God knows it and he sees it and he loves us in ways. So I want to leave more time by pointing us to look at these last three verses. David says, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous. And burnt offerings offered whole. Then the bulls will be offered on your altar. Uh, One commentator pointed this out. And he said that there there was no sacrifice in the Old Testament for David to make. Because David had murdered somebody. There was no sacrifice in the law that he could make. Because the punishment for murder was the death penalty. So David literally had no sacrifice he could potentially make. And even if there had been, if he had simply made that sacrifice but hadn't had a contrite heart, hadn't had an attitude of repentance, it would have been worthless. And so we too, like David, have no sacrifice. We have nothing of ourselves to give. We cannot sign up for enough programs... We cannot come to church often enough. We cannot read or pray our Bible often enough in order to make up for our sins. The only sacrifice we have is that of Jesus Christ. He is the one that we claim. He is the one that we look to. Look to the cross and behold your sacrifice. Behold the God who loves you. Loves you to the point of his own death. And that he has come and he has conquered that death so that we might have newness of life. There truly is, there is no sinner, there is no person, no being, not a one who is beyond the reach of God's forgiving and transforming grace. That's what I believe God has for you. That's what I believe he has for each and every single one of you. And so today we're going to take communion here at Conduit. And, and really what this is... you me get down here without falling. Really what this is, right, is us taking part in a very physical way of, of, of what Christ did for us. Because Jesus came and he sat the night before... night before he was uh, arrested and put on false trial. And he sat before his disciples... And his followers and he took the bread and he broke the bread and he said behold my body broken for you and then he took up the cup and he said my blood shed for you that you might have forgiveness of sins and and Christ makes no distinction just like we talked about today he invites everyone to his table He says, there doesn't have to be a pre-requirement. If you want to take part in my forgiveness, in the new life and transformation I have for you, come and eat. Taste and see that I am good. Come and be part of the new life that I offer. And so that is what we are going to do today, is we're going to take part of that. And I want to encourage you today... That if, you're, if, if you feel that tug, whether you've never come to the table before, but you want to take part in what Christ has for you, in that forgiveness and transformation, I would welcome you up here freely. The way we take communion here is we, we tear off a bit of the bread and then we dip it into the juice and we kind of come up the, the center aisle and then we go off into the sides and sit back down. And so I'm going to ask the uh, worship team to come on back up. And as they're kind of doing so, um, also, Eric Clark, could you come up and help me administer communion? Um, and I just want to, again, make that crystal clear that Christ invites all of us forward. That there is no sin or problem that could keep you away from Jesus. And God invites you forward today. And so that is my call, that is the call of Christ. And so, first, Eric, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ broken and shed for you. When you're ready, feel free to come forward down the center aisle. Thank you all for coming today. I want to again one more time tell you and encourage you that Christ is with you, that his death and resurrection have bought and redeemed and saved you. I want to encourage you to go forth this week knowing that you are forgiven, that you are redeemed, and that Christ's transformation will continue on from here. Go in peace conduit and know that you're loved.